And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. As always, I am your host, Mr. Luke Giaconetti, and thank you very much for joining us today. Hope everyone enjoyed our last episode where we got caught up with the second volume of IDW's Godzilla comic series. Very fun uh, fun series. It finished up on a real bang, I thought. So, good episode. Hope everyone got a chance to listen to that one and enjoy that one. Today we're going to be talking about, we're getting uh, back into television, we're going to be talking about the American show Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad, which is a localization of a Tsuburaya Kyodai hero tokusatsu show. And of course we're going to be talking about Marvel Comics Shogun Warriors as well. But we do have a couple of bits of news to cover first before we get started. First off, as of the day I am recording this, just yesterday Legendary Pictures released the official trailer for 2014's Godzilla film. And oh boy, this looks uh, this looks really special, folks. You know, they had uh, the Legendary Camp has been talking about that they wanted to make Godzilla scary and serious again. And if this film lives up to what this trailer promises, they're going to achieve that. What's interesting is that earlier this week, they sort of officially released the footage from San Diego this past year, which featured the famous Oppenheimer quote, you know, I am become death. And I had seen that footage kind of leaked as a bootleg, but then they released it officially, but then they, they took it back down. So I don't know what the deal was with that. But I said, you can find this trailer pretty much anywhere, any video site that you want to check out, YouTube, uh, Trailer Addict, any place that you'd normally view your trailers, I'm sure you could find this one at. Other little piece of news is, of course, Pacific Rim has been released on home media. I actually picked this one up on a Blu-ray DVD combo pack. Uh, I <laughs> didn't own a Blu-ray player when I bought it on Blu-ray, so this was uh, not something I've had a chance to watch, although my wife did pick up a Blu-ray player at Black Friday. She was out getting some stuff for the boys and found one uh, at a good price. So we picked that up. So that will be in the near future. But if you haven't had a chance, go to your favorite retailer, pick up uh, Pacific Rim on DVD or Blu-ray or both. Or go ahead and click on the two, on the Amazon.com link at 2TrueFreaks.com and order it through Amazon.com. Help keep the lights on here at 2TrueFreaks. But that stuff out of the way, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to come right back and talk about Superhuman Samurai Cyber squad here on Earth Destruction Directive. Grom, I have never prayed to you before. I have no tongue for it. No one, not even you, would remember if we were good men or bad. Why we bought, why we sold on eBay. All that matters is that 50 cent Captain Kirk Migo Akachin figure. That's what's important. Cheapness pleases you, Grom. So grab me one request. Grab me the fruit of suburbia's garage sales. Let me drive those dealers away from that box of records and hear the lamentations of the children as I buy their Star Wars toys for a quarter. And if you do not listen, then to hell with you! Hello, I'm Chris Honeywell. And I make my living going to garage sales and then selling the junk I find on eBay. That's right, just like those assholes on TV. You can hear a podcast all about it where I tell you about all the good junk I got, how I sold it, give you tips, gripe, bitch, and moan, and even have friends come along with me. So check it out. It's called Garage Sale Gloat, and it can only be found at 2TrueFreaks.com, which is, of course, the home of the 2 True Freaks Network. Duh. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. 
Our main topic of discussion today is the 90s show Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad. Now, if you listened to uh, my appearances on Professor Allen and Emily's excellent Shortbox Showcase podcast, you know that we briefly talked about this series, and the way that I always describe this show and its Japanese counterpart, which we'll get into in a minute, is uh, you know, Ultraman meets Tron. And it's a fun show, so let's let's not beat around the bush, let's start covering our show here. The show, which would become Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad, began its life as the 1993 Subaraya show Denko Chojin Gridman, which translates as Lightning Superman Gridman. Gridman is, as I've said, best described as Ultraman meets Tron. Our hero was an interdimensional police officer charged with taking down the digital villain Khan Digifer. Digifer, with the help of a human misfit, creates virus monsters which attack digital and electronic systems, creating havoc in the real world. With the help of some tech-savvy human kids, Gridman took down the viruses and stopped Digifer. How the series came to the U.S., that's a bit of a story on its own. Toy company Playmates, best known for their release of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, they saw the success Bandai of America was having with their Mighty Morphin Power Rangers toys, and they had their development team over at the Animation House Deke reach out to Subaraya about localizing the show. The concept had plenty for Playmates to merchandise. There was a hero, there was monsters for him to fight, and allies to fight alongside the hero. Subaraya was more than on board with the idea, so Playmates, they quickly developed the American take on the property. Originally titled Power Boy, the series' was, name was changed fairly late in the game to the more Mighty Morphin sound in Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad. The show was rushed very quickly into production and debuted in first-run syndication in most U.S. markets on September 12, 1994. Now, in my neck of the woods in Lower New York, the show was aired at 5 o'clock on WPIX Channel 11 as part of a one-hour block with fellow tokusatsu in-church show VR Troopers, both of which are now on DVD. Playmates brought over the large Bandai toys to the U.S., as well as marketing and creating their own action figure-sized toys. Though not a huge hit at the time, the DX Bandai toys sell for pretty big bucks on the collector market now. The basic plot of Cyber Squad remains the same. You know what? I'll let the narrator explain it for us. inside computer circuits. With the help of Malcolm Frink, he creates megavirus monsters to attack electronic systems. Meanwhile, a freak accident turns Sam Collins into Servo. His friends join forces in their samurai's attack vehicles. Together, they transform into the Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad. Our hero, now dubbed Servo, and yes, the misty jokes came fast and furious for me. He still fights megavirus monsters in the digital world. The human side was also similar to Gridman. Teenager Sam Collins and his friend, friends Amp, Sydney, and Tanker are allies in the fight. Although here, Sam actually is transported into the computer and becomes Servo, instead of being just helped by him. The others also get transported into the computer world, where they pilot antivirus programs in the form of mecha that can work alongside Servo, or combine with them for more powerful forms. The megavirus monsters are dreamt up by the brilliant social outcast Malcolm Frank, who has hooked up with Kilocon, a military AI who developed sentience and seeks to eradicate all meat things from Earth. Malcolm draws the monsters on his sketchpad, then Kilocon digitizes it to life, and the battle is on. Oh, and did I mention that all of these kids went to high school together and had wacky adventures there? Did I need to mention that? Kind of a given, huh? The show's best remembered, besides its equal parts awesome and ridiculous theme song, for the great hero and monster designs. Servo is a Kyodai hero, definitely in the Ultraman vein, albeit with a bit of armor on his chest, plus gauntlets and boots. Besides his hand-to-hand -hand skills, he also wields a sword and shield. Looks very cool on his Ultra Act toy and he can fire a powerful beam from his forearm, again, like many Ultramen. Servo even has a color timer on his head, which will, again, like Ultraman, begin to blink when he's low on power. Also worth noting is the cast. Tween heartthrob Matthew Lawrence, younger brother of Joey Lawrence, plays Sam, while Kilo Khan is voiced by none other than Tim Curry. Yeah, you heard me right, Tim Curry. The team's samurai antivirus programs come in two varieties. 
The first is the Xenon program, and is composed of a jet, a tank, and a drill tank named Vidor, Tracto, and Boar, respectively, which are piloted by the team. Besides operating independently, they can combine into a robot form named Xenon, appropriately, and in addition, they can form a suit of armor for Servo, upgrading him to a form called Synchro, known as Thunder Gridman in Japan. Synchro's main weapon was a pair of shoulder-mounted drill missiles, made famous in the show for their appearance in the opening credits on every episode. The second is Drago Program, created by the merging of two jets, Jam and Torb, to form a robotic dragon named, you guessed it, Drago. Drago himself was immensely powerful, but could also combine with Servo into the upgraded form Formo, who is armed with powerful lasers, Formo known as King Gridman in Japan. One of the oddities of the show was that while Gridman only ran for 39 episodes, Cyber Squad ran for 53, so footage of monster battles was used multiple times throughout the run of the show. Now, given the formulaic nature of the show, and the <laughs> incredibly great hand-wave no-prize that Malcolm and Kilocon could simply recreate old monsters since they were just data, made this somewhat acceptable, but strange nonetheless, especially since... The other shows around the time didn't do this as badly as, as Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad did. VR Troopers reused footage, more so even than Power Rangers did, but Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad recycled just whole scenes over and over. The show had little in the way of episode-to-episode -episode continuity, except when the goofball Tanker left the show and was replaced by surfer dude Lucky. So pretty much you can watch a random episode of the show, and from there, understand how it works. Which is what we are going to do right now. I've got my random number generator here, and I'm going to randomly roll an episode of the show to watch. The entire series, as I said, has been released on two three-DVD sets from Mill Creek Entertainment. So I've got episodes 1 to 53 loaded. Let's roll it and see what we are going to watch. And it is episode 17, Money for Nothing and Bits for Free. Let's hear the intro to the episode, and then we'll come back and uh, talk about it. Next, on Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad. Monster metal virus in the digital world? I can deal with that. But being broke, too? It's weird. It's all been tapped. Does anyone need any cash? Yeah. I can't believe you guys would sink this low. Malcolm Frink is a great guy. I think I'm really going to like this. He's just gonna go right down the tubes. What are you talking about? I gotta get some cash fast. Let's kick some giga butt. Our story goes that Malcolm gets an idea to make Sam's life miserable by making him broke. To that end, he creates a megavirus monster named Chronic. No, really, the monster's name is Chronic. Who will infiltrate Sam's bank account and wipe him out. Chronic has a thick metal hide and a large crab-like claw and a blade for hands. An impressive beast, for sure. Kilocon likes the monster and the idea, but takes it one step further, making Chronic infiltrate banking systems across the nation, bankrupting families from coast to coast and sending the world into an economic death spiral. Back on the home front, Amp, Sydney, and the other students are forced to kowtow to Malcolm, humiliating themselves, since he's the only one in school who has any money. Sam refuses to humiliate himself, but when his sister Elizabeth is hurt and needs an operation, he gives in pie-facing his would-be girlfriend Jennifer, unfortunately off-screen. Sydney soon discovers the virus, and it's up to Servo to save the day. Chronic proves to be a challenging foe, using his metallic skin as effective armor. In addition, the gem in his chest acts as a mirror, reflecting Servo's ranged attacks right back at him. Servo puts up a fight, but can't get the upper hand, so Amp samurizes into the grid, piloting the tank Tracto. Amp destroys the gem, and Chronic is decimated by Servo's forearm beam. The next day, Elizabeth is on the mend, and everything is back to normal for the kids at school, save for Malcolm, who is being hunted down like a dog by the soccer team he had humiliated for money. In the digital world, Kilocon plots his next move, planning to eliminate the Servo program once and for all. Again, as, as I said, pretty straightforward show. You know, the plots were always... Uh, fairly easy to digest, nothing too complicated. Let, let's get into some notes here. Malcolm has some very questionable motives and goals as a bad guy, very petty and personal. Here, he wants to wipe out Sam because he doesn't like the fact that Sam has money, and that that's pretty much his only motivation. 
So what Kilo Khan typically does is he takes Malcolm's petty uh, motivations and manipulates it and puts it onto a larger scale. So here, again, taking the idea of wiping out Sam's wealth and putting it on a global scale, now you've got a legitimate threat. Kind of an interesting approach, and, and Kilo Khan is a, is a very good character. In, in a show where everybody's very broad, Kilo Khan is obviously very broad, but Curry brings a lot of kind of uh, scenery chewing to the role, even though he's only doing voice acting. Uh, as far as attacking the financial data, the show often had a premise like this, where if the plot was treated seriously, it would be devastating, but it's played for laughs. This one has a little bit more heady stuff in it than, than average, you know, Sam bemoaning that his family has lost their, their checking account, their savings account, and their retirement accounts, and his sister getting getting hurt and needing an operation and they don't have any money. These were slightly more dramatic than we'd normally get on the show, but still, the majority of it is played for laughs, uh, as we'll see here. One of the things that's played for laughs is uh, the character of Lunch Lady Starkey, who is, as her name suggests, the lunch lady at the high school, or dinner lady, I guess if you're in the U.K., and she is this bizarre screwball comic relief. She's a biker. Uh, she always has insane stories about uh, her adventures outside of school. She's easily the best part of pretty much all the high school scenes in the series because it's just, like I said, she's just bizarre and strange. You never know what their character's going to say. Uh, and, and she's great here. Malcolm gives her a huge tip, and she's more than willing to take it. She just doesn't care. I, I love Lunch Lady Starkey. Some of the other high school scenes here, again, all the high school scenes are always played for laughs, but in this one, we see some a little bit of uh, oddball stuff. With, with Malcolm being the only one with money, he forces all of the other students to do whatever he demands of them in order to, to get some money. So we see Amp in his pajamas, because that's what Malcolm demanded. We see Sydney dressed up as a hula girl, you know, hubba hubba on that one, because Malcolm's demanded that she do a hula dance for him. Of course, in this scene, Tanker is dressed as a gaucho for no discernible reason, because Tanker is insane. Tanker was a, uh, we would later find out that he was actually an alien, which is why he made no sense as a human, but here he's just a goof. That, that same scene with everyone dressed up has one of the most eyebrow-raising scenes from this series, where uh, off-screen, we are referred to the soccer team who is singing a serenade in their jock straps. And while everybody looks on in shock, Sydney looks on with this wry smile on her face and her eyes bulge a little bit. She is definitely interested in seeing all the soccer players in their jock straps. Now, one thing that this show had, because it was on syndication, it didn't have uh, a network's broadcast standards and practices board that it had to be reviewed by, like Fox had for Money More from Power Rangers. So they got away with slightly more subversive stuff like that. The show definitely didn't take itself seriously, so the comedy had a little bit of an edge to it every now and again. That one was definitely one of those moments. There's no way they'd have ever done a joke like that on any of the Saban shows from this era. So uh, Deke putting it in there... And, and, of course, being allowed to go through because it was syndicated, that really made me smile. That, that was a lot of, that was a good, good bit. The monster Chronic is like the later Ultra Monster Recurus, only taller. Uh, he has a kind of a similar look with his face and his claw arms. Uh, his skin is said to actually be a chromium-titanium alloy. Now, I'm not a metallurgist, but that sounds pretty tough to me. So, you know, good call on that one. I'll have to ask my buddy who, uh, uh, he's a materials engineer. He knows this stuff. He's a very tough, very neat-looking monster, but sadly, he doesn't get much screen time this episode. I'm not sure if he gets more screen time when he's recycled. I do know that the monster was, uh, was resurrected in a new form later on. His name in Japan is Steel Monster Metallus, so they stayed with the metal aspects. And again, his plot in Japan was similar, as he also attacked financial institutions. And as I said, he was later resurrected. His name in Japan was Neo Metallus, but he was simply called Chronic in an upgraded form uh, in the U.S. Very similar. He's more white than metallic-looking in his upgraded form, but otherwise looks very similar. And similar attacks. Has the reflective barrier and the claw hand and the blade hand. Uh, the battle is about what you'd expect. Um, Servo goes in, tries to fight him, gets his attacks reflected back at him, is beaten down, and then his color timer goes off before the reinforcements arrive in the form of Tracto. This is a pretty to uh, common tokusatsu formula nowadays. We especially see this in the Super Sentai and in Power Rangers, where uh, you know the, the heroes will fight the monster, 
And this, especially like the um, once we get past the first third or so of the series, when when we've either got a six ranger or we've got an upgraded form or something, they'll fight the monster, they'll get beaten back, they'll upgrade, then they'll defeat it. Now in Super Sentai, of course, that means that this gets done twice because then they'll do it with the mecha as well. We see this in Common Rider also, where our hero will fight the monster, then get uh, overwhelmed and upgrade to his new form and fight him. It's not as common in Kyodai hero stuff. Most of the time, like we see in Ultraman, Ultra 7, some of these Showa Ultra series, when the hero's uh, color timer goes off, he simply pushes to the next level and has to use a, a new attack or a new technique, not so much a new form. But uh, here... He calls in reinforcements. Now, this episode does not feature any of Servo's other forms, but it was not uncommon for, instead of only one of the uh, samurai team to samurize into the grid and help, that all of them would come and they would uh, you know, either combine or form one of the other uh, assistants to, to help Servo. And, and it's a neat combination. I don't have a problem with that. I, I think it's one of the things that helps differentiate both Gridman and Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad from Ultraman is the use of the assistants. Kind of a little bit like Ultra 7's Capsule Monsters, although he typically didn't fight beside them. Normally, if Dan couldn't access his Ice Slugger, he would use one of his Capsule Monsters to uh, to fight a battle for him. But similar ideas, and it's, it, it works well, and it gets some really neat forms. All the, the allied and uh, upgraded forms of, of Servo are very neat. Uh, his finisher beam is never named as near as I can tell in the American series. In Japan, it's called the Lightning Thunderbolt, uh, which, again, makes sense. Lightning, Superman, Gridman, so Lightning Thunderbolt. Uh, I, I mean, I'm, I don't know why they didn't name it. It seems like uh, kind of a, a missed opportunity. Similarly, when the monster is defeated, Gridman, and Servo in this case, always... Uh, uh, emits a beam from his chest that repairs all the damage done to the digital world. This was also never named in the U.S. It's called the Fixer Beam in Japan. Another thing that differentiates this series from other Ultra shows is that because it's, again, just data bits and bytes in a uh, digital world, Servo is able to repair the damage and restore life to some form of normalcy. The ending is a comedy ending, of course, which is, of course, typical. This episode features a bit of pathos not normally found in most episodes, but as a whole, it's indicative of the show's formula and a good representative episode. You've got all the elements. You get the comic relief, you get the kids at high school, you get interaction between Malcolm and Kilo Khan, you get the battle in the cyber world, and you get a happy ending. So, all in all, uh, like I said, you can watch any episode and you get a gist. Supreme Samurai Cyber Squad, it's a disposable show. It's absolutely perfect for mindless entertainment, like while you're waiting for dinner to cook or maybe before bed you don't want to read. There's not much in the way of character or drama, but there's a lot of neat footage of our hero battling virus monsters in the digital world, and ultimately that's entertainment enough. The insert scenes are pretty amateurish and poorly made. In fact, I often would watch this show and mute the insert scenes and just wait for the fighting scenes to come up. But they can be amusing in their own, you know, just-don't-give-a-you-know-what attitude. And sometimes they can just get downright bizarre and a little bit subversive in their humor. Compared to the deadly serious uh, schedule-made VR troopers, uh, Superman Samurai Cyber Squad has a much better sense of awareness of just how corny all of it is. And it rolls with it. It just goes with the fact that it's kind of a silly show. And combined with the really, really well-designed tokusatsu footage from Gridman. This makes for a viewing experience one is not likely to soon forget. Now, as I said, this entire series is available on DVD. It's in uh, across two volumes, all 53 episodes. You can get them from Amazon.com. Uh, just go to TwoTrueFreaks.com, click on the Amazon.com link, and you can pick them up. It's, it's really worth it. It's a bare-bones release, both of them. It's just the episodes. But really, do you need anything else? I mean, just put it on and turn your brain off and have fun. And that's all I, I really do with this show, and I really enjoy it for that, for that very reason. So we are going to take a quick break and be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Imagine you enter the world of the Shogun Warriors. They're on the move. There's Raideen with Delta Wing missiles, Dragoon with a star shooter, and Mazinga with a rocket launcher. The Shogun! Imagine you command them to defend freedom, protect justice, and challenge Edo. The Shoguns! They're ready to strike when you are. Shogun warriors, Mazinga, Dragoon, Raideen, equipped with their own gear, each sold separately from Mattel. 
Okay, we're back on Earth Destruction Directive. And now it is time to take a look at Marvel's Shogun Warriors number 6. Shogun Warriors number 6 has a cover date of July 1979 and is entitled Downfall. Our creators are Doug Mench, writer, Herb Trimpey, artist, Mike Esposito, inker, Tom Orzachowski, letterer, Carl Gafford, colorist, Al Milgram, editor, and Jim Shooter, editor-in-chief. In the wild, Zalongo Savage and Richard Carson pile a Dangard Ace and Raideen against the mech monster who continues to shrug off their attacks. Carson gets an idea, and the two Shoguns tag-team the monster, tricking it opening its mouth, down which Carson fires one of Raideen's missile arrows. The mech monster's insides are not nearly as impenetrable as his outsides, and with a bahoom, he is destroyed. The two pilots try to contact Genji, but she does not answer, so they home in on Kambatra's signal and track it to the volcanic Haunt of Evil. But as they approach, Kambatra attacks, blasting the other Shoguns with its finger rockets. Dr. Tambora and his team hack Kambatra's cockpit camera and discover that it is Lord Malarkon at the helm. Dangard and Radine press the attack, but cannot bring themselves to destroy one of their own machines, leaving Malarkon free to counterattack the other Shoguns. Deep in the recesses of the Haunt of Evil, Genji is held prisoner. Her guards are taken out by Lieutenant Nagar, who abducts the unconscious pilot, intending to use her life force to create a new sorcery-based monster. Trussing her up above the pool of dark life, the churning blood of the earth begins to rise, seeking out the life force. Genji awakens at the last second and swings away, escaping her doom. The blood of the earth is not satisfied, though, and lurches toward Magar, spilling out of the pool and eating away at everything in its path. Genji commandeers a tank-like war machine and makes a break for it. Back outside, Maurikon and Kambatra have the upper hand, but the Lord of Evil is distracted when he sees the haunt begin to collapse. Genji open fires with the tank, blasting Kambatra's head module off its shoulders. She keeps the barrage up until Maurikon is forced to bail out over the ocean. As the haunt of evil crumbles down into the earth, Radine and Dangarde save Genji from the rubble. Back in Hollywood, we get a short peek in on Richard Carson's former colleague Dina, a stunt woman, who is concerned for Carson's whereabouts. She quits her stunt gig and drives off into the sunset looking for answers. More on that next issue, I guess. Back with the pilots, and our actual story, they feel mixed emotions as the servants of evil seemingly have been defeated but they lost Skystriker V in the process. Suddenly, the flying Kambatra module appears in the sky, piloted by Dr. Tambura. He tells the crew that he has one duplicate for each component of their Shoguns, but only one, so they can't be reckless. But more importantly, he tells that them that with Maurikon's force is dead, their mission is over, and they are free to go. Next issue, the conquering heroes return to the relative tranquility of home and normal life. But the respite ends quickly for Carson and Radine when they meet the Many Heads of Cerebus. Hmm, interesting blow-off issue here as we get settled uh, both of the cliffhangers from last time out. So, pretty good issue. Let's take a look at some notes. Uh, the cover is kind of an interesting perspective in that we have in the foreground uh, Raiden, and uh, he it looks like at first glance that Raiden is being attacked by Kambatra and Dangard Ace, but then when you, you look at it a little bit closely, you can see that Raiden and Dangard Ace are in fact fighting Kambatra. But Raiden being in the foreground and Kambatra being much smaller in the midground, it's kind of a weird design. You would think that the one Shogun being controlled that the other two were fighting would be the focus of the cover, and it's not. So it's kind of a little misleading at first, but it, it makes sense. Uh, sadly, the fight here is depicted as being in the middle of the city. We have military jets flying around them as well as a news chopper, and they do not fight anywhere near the city. They fight on the, uh, the volcanic island that is the haunt of evil. A little disappointing in that. Page one, the mech monster dominates the splash page here as we see him uh, blasting Dangard Ace with his tail while uh, breathing fire all over uh, Raiding. Very nice follow-up to one of the two cliffhangers. I really like the mech monster. I thought he was a good foe. So good to see him take center stage uh, as his story wraps up here. Turning over to page six, Panels 2 and 3, after Radine fires the uh, rocket arrow down the mech monster's mouth. On panel 2, we get a close-up of his eye, 
And uh, it's, it's, you know, Mech Monster being a combination of organic life and mechanical life, his eyes look kind of strange because they have a pink, and they're pink instead of white, and then he's got red eyes and black irises. So he looks very strange here. And you get this close-up of his glaring eye before the next panel where he detonates. And as I said, the sound effect is boom which is, again, I love these old-school sound effects as we see him ripped apart. And, again, it, it's a combination of parts that look organic and parts that look mechanical flying around. Uh, a nice end to the monster, but it's a little anticlimactic when you consider the fact that the mech monster has run roughshod over the team for, like, an issue and a half, and they defeat him by firing an arrow down his mouth. I mean, I suppose they had to get rid of him, but I would have thought it been a little bit more difficult than that. We move rapidly on to the next plot point, as on page 7, panels 2 and 3, Combatra opens fire on the two other Shoguns. Now, in panel 2, we see Combatra firing the rockets from its missile tips, and it's got a hilarious sound effect of douche, 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 douche. And I know that didn't mean what it means now, back in 79, but still funny. And then on panel 3, we see the impacts of the, the rockets, and it's actually pretty neat, because Trimpy has drawn all four rockets, even though one hits... Dangard Ace and one hits Radiant, the other two we see them flying by and missing. So I thought that was a, a good touch, a little creative thing, continuity there. And the way that it's drawn as well, uh, we see an explosion in each of the robots' chests, and then their faces and upper bodies are just in silhouette. They're just blacked out from the shadow being thrown over them by the light. Very nice little panel, very nice use of blacks. Uh, turning over to page 10, panel 6, uh, we see Maurikon at the helm of Combatra, and you know he's got the little uh, like purple dags on his face and underneath his eyes, but with the coloring here, it just looks like he's crying. Like he's just so, he can't contain himself. His emotions are so out of control because uh, he's piloting Combatra. Um, his skin tone is very red, once again, like it was with uh, Magar in the last issue. So it appears that this may be a conscious decision in coloring, um, by, um, uh, by by Gafford for the evil characters, which is fine. I mean, they live in an underground volcanic uh, lair, so I guess they could be a little sunburned. You know, I, I'm willing to accept that. On page 11, we see Radine use his shield like a bird boomerang. This is the first time we've seen this power demonstrated. It's actually very neat, because he throws it like a discus, but then you see the beak pop out and the wings pop out of the side, and this was a power that Raiding had in his in his uh, anime, so this makes sense to use it here. Combatra blocks it by putting both of her uh, of his forearms up like a boxer and reflects it back. Very neat. And uh, Dangard Ace then fires his fist off at Combatra. Always nice to have a toy tie-in like that, you know, firing fist. Turning over to page uh, 15, panel 3, Magar has Genji tied up upside down over the pool. This this makes sense. But the way that she is bent, I don't see how exactly she is staying in this position. Because he's got shackles at her wrists, fine. He's got one big manacle around both of her ankles, fine. And then the rope is tied around her calves. But she's bent like, if you picture... You're kneeling with your feet and legs tucked under yourself, like sitting down on your ankles, kneeling. Then turn yourself upside down. That's the pose that Genji's in. Her, it's there's if there was we need like a uh, a chain from the manacle around her ankles to her belt or something to keep her legs in this position. Otherwise, she would just hang. You know, her her knees wouldn't stay bent. So I, I'm not really sure how this works from a physics standpoint. Of course, this is the physics I'm questioning in a comic book about giant robots fighting monsters. Um, I also have to say that it really looks like Trimpy had uh, really enjoyed drawing Genji's backside in this panel. Very, very nice. You just want to just, a little pop, you know. Uh, also worth noting, Magar again has the really red skin. So I'm just calling that a conscious design decision and going with that. Pages uh, 16 and 17 the blood of the earth looks like the blob as it rampages around here because it kind of reaches and stretches out in different uh, directions. Um, in the bottom of page 16 on panel 8, it looks like a giant wave from like a surfer movie as it's going to crash coming at Magar, which in itself is funny except when you realize it's molten rock and that's really going to hurt when it hits him. So. It's, uh, it's, it's a neat sequence. It, it almost looks, it reminds me a little bit of 
towards the end of the movie Fire and Ice when they release all the lava at Firekeep and we see it just overflowing everything and wiping everything out because that's what it kind of looks like here. Obviously, this predates uh, Fire and Ice. Uh, turning over to page 19, panel 4, again, we see Malarkon in the helm of Combatra. And, man, he's clearly enjoying himself. He's got this big grin on his face. As he looks like he's just having a ball, and clearly he should be because, you know, who get, I mean, wouldn't it be awesome to pilot a giant robot? I can't blame the guy. Uh, page 23, panel 6. After the servants of evil are beaten back, uh, we see the Radine and um, Dangard Ace go and save Genji, and we get the panel here of uh, Genji uh, cradled on the index finger of Dangard Ace. This is a very common trope in tokusatsu to show the scale, having a human interact in this way with uh, one of the giants, either a robot or a hero or what have you. I mean, this dates all the way back to King Kong, showing this sort of thing, so nice to see the trope and tradition paraded out here. Uh, pages 26 and 27, this is our subplot with the stunt girl, Dina. And I don't have a problem with this subplot, um, because, again, since the next issue, Blurb tells us that we're going to be getting back to these characters having personal lives in the next issue, but it just seems like an odd place to put it. Right here, after the, uh, you know, right at the end of the book, but not before the story's wrapped up, because we still got the, basically the, the, the denouement of the story, so it's kind of an odd placement for it. I'm hoping we find out a little bit more about it, because as it stands, this really isn't all that interesting. And uh, Dina, yeah, she doesn't look so hot here, because for part of, well, we only get one shot of her not wearing her helmet where she's looking at the camera, and she has, like, no facial features, at least in my copy of it, because um, she's kind of in the background, so I'm not sure what, what Trimpy was doing. Trimpy can draw women. He draws Genji wonderfully, so maybe it's just, maybe it was kind of a rushed, rushed bit. I don't know. Uh, finally, page 30. In panel 4, after Dr. Tambora disembarks from the Sky Striker V, we see he's wearing his own version of a Shogun Warrior's field uniform. He doesn't have the red uh, vest and gloves or, or trim on his gloves like the pilots do, but he's still wearing a field uniform. That's, that's kind of amusing. And uh, now uh, the, the odd bit here is the cliffhanger where he says the heroes can go home. Uh, what does this mean, exactly? We're going to have to find out in the next issue. Does it mean that, you know, they're going to be on call? Does it mean that, hey, you get to keep your giant robot and go do whatever you want? You know, I, I don't know. So, not as powerful a cliffhanger, obviously, as the last time, with uh, two-thirds of the team uh, being uh, under attack and one-third of the team captured and their, their shogun uh, being commandeered by evil, but an interesting cliffhanger, nonetheless. Um, kind of a little too quick of a wrap-up to the story, honestly. Uh, you know, I, I, th this was kind of two plots going on at once, so the mech monster got wrapped up real fast. And then the Combatra one was handled nicely, but I think, you know, maybe if we'd pushed this one more issue, would, have been, would it have been pushing it too far? Possibly. Uh, it's hard to say with pacing with some of these, these comics from this era, because, you know, you don't... Uh, nowadays, we we're just like, oh, everything's got to be, you know, at least four issues, preferably six for most writers, but here, th this was kind of wrapped up in the space of, you know, 22 pages, so... I don't know. It, it, it felt a little rushed to me. Overall, still a lot of fun to read, a lot of action, and of course robots fighting each other, which is the reason that we're, we're reading comics like Shogun Warriors in the first place, so that's always appreciated. The ending sort of comes out of nowhere, which to me kind of hurt the overall reading experience, because they, they defeat Malwarekhan pretty quick. Again, it's, it's page, it just comes down to page count. Maybe if we had dropped that subplot with Dina, we could have had two more pages of fighting, and this would have made you know, uh, a little bit more of a full resolution to the story, you know? Again, I don't know. you got to set up the subplot somewhere. Where do you put it? So it's always a trade-off when it comes to, you know, your main plot and your subplot because you can't just have main plot and then never pay off any subplots. So it's kind of a, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm hard-pressed to say how else you'd do that. But the initial storyline of the Shogun's fighting Lord Mauricon does wrap itself up, and we seem to be headed in a new direction. As pretty much every issue of this comic has been, it's a very fun uh, Marvel Bronze Age comic. Definitely won't tax your brain, but does provide a solid 22 pages of action, which is pretty much what I'm looking for in a licensed comic featuring giant robots. Now, I do want to mention that we do get a letters page this time out. The letters page is entitled Warrior Dispatch. Now, we get a letter from a Mr. Keith Fung from Melrose, Massachusetts, and this is an interesting letter. I think I alluded to this earlier in a, in a previous episode. 
And uh, Mr. Fung writes, Dear Editor, you have finally created a legend which makes me write my first letter to Marvel, although many times I've been tempted, to compliment you on the momentous advent of the Shogun Warriors. However, I do have some reservations about this book. The warriors you portray are Radiant Combatra and Dangard Ace. But where are Dragon, Great Mazinga, Guy King, Poseidon, Grandizer, and Raider? If you only have three humans piloting three Shoguns, where does that leave the rest of the warriors? And then he goes on to talk about whether the pilots merge with the Shoguns or simply pilot them. And, but that, that question was, was the part that really interested me. And how they actually answer that. By way of answer, we can only categorically state that the three Shogun warriors are enough already. Each one is so unique, so complex, so diverse, and so multifarious in its abilities that it took us four or five issues just to show what all three of them can do. Adding another five or six robots would be sheer suicide. Writer Mensch would collapse over his typewriter. Artist Trimpy would probably jump out the airplane and screams. And editor Al Milgram would climb the bullpen walls, foaming at the mouth. Besides, our contract only permits us the use of the original three robots, Radiant, Combatra, and Dangardes, okay? But the real reason still stands. Even one of these for Schlegener newfangled robots is more than enough grist for plenty of thrills, chills, and excitement. And if you don't believe me, just check out the next issue on sale in a brief 30 days. So Marvel does address it, and they, they call out specifically that the nature of the Shogun Warriors, because the toys themselves were licensed from so many different places, that each, each robot had to be negotiated and licensed separately. If you take a look at the copyright information, they specifically call out Combatra, copyright, Hiromi Pro slash Tawai, Dangard Ace, copyright, Reggie Matsumoto, Tawai, Radiant, copyright, uh, Tohu Kushina. So e each one required a different contract, and these were the three they, were, they got. What I always point to, one of the robots featured in the Shogun Warriors line is uh, Lepeldon who was the robot from the Spider-Man TV show. Marvel couldn't get the rights to use the robot from the Spider-Man tokusatsu show. You'd think that one would be obvious, but it didn't happen. See, I, I still think that if Marvel was real ballsy, the superior Spider-Man would have involved bringing in Lepaldin. That nobody would have seen coming. Uh, ads, we get pretty much uh, the usual complement of ads. We do get a couple of interesting ones. One that I really like that you see around this time is the ad for the first wave of Star Wars action figures with, instead of showing pictures of the toys, they're hand-drawn. I really like this ad. I love that the sand person has these big googly eyes. <laughs> I really that, that just cracks me up every time I see it. But I really need, and uh, also it's not Han Solo, it's Hans Solo. I guess I've been wrong all these years. Um, but again, neat ad. It's for uh, Heroes World, I think, is uh, I guess the outfit where they would sell you the toys if you sent them the coupon and some money. I guess they had an early line on them. Oh, we get a Marvel subscription page featuring uh, all the usual stars, but also very neat in here, tucked in here, is Conan and Howard the Duck amongst all the superheroes. And uh, we only get one... One woman on the on the page, and it's the Scarlet Witch all the way in the back, which is kind of funny. Now, I mentioned earlier in the episode uh, my good friend Professor Allen, and on his Quarterbin podcast, he recently did an episode of the Micronauts. And we had previously seen house ads featuring the Micronauts and the Shogun Warriors, as two, they were two licensed books at the same time. Well, here we get a house ad for the Epic Encounter of 1979. It's Insiders versus Outsider when the marvelous Micronauts meet the macabre Man-Thing. And that's in Micronauts number seven. This is a great-looking cover. Um, with uh, the Man-Thing in his swamp grabbing at all the Micronauts as they swarm around him. And uh, Michael Golden did this, I believe. And man, that looks nice. I tell you what, I see that. I'm interested in buying that just to, just to see uh, you know, the story on that, because those are two groups you wouldn't think to max, mix up the, uh, the Micronauts and the Man-Thing. We get an ad for a movie projector, a reel-to-reel -reel movie projector. This is only really notable to me. It can play Super 8 and 8mm, but I like that they, they show a little image demonstrating what the uh, screen, what the image looks like on the screen, and it's a girl with her hands kind of tucked behind her head, and she's got this, uh, it looks like she's wearing a, like a, like a two-piece, like pajama suit, except it's like zipped all the way undown, zipped on, uh, unzipped like all the way down to like her navel. So it's like it's kind of like they're assuming you're going to use it to watch naughty movies, which you know again, probably true, but a little a little odd to see here. <laughs> Opposite that, we get an ad for Superman Kryptonite Rocks, because 
they don't care if it's Marvel versus DC. They just don't care. So that that was uh, was kind of amusing. Um, on the bullpen bulletins page, we get a little uh, ad for the Fantastic Four cartoon series featuring Herbie the Robot. And if you want some Fantastic Four, go check out uh, my good friends Stephen and Andrew over at the Fantastic Cast at ffcast.libsyn.com. Speaking of the Fantastic Four, we do get a Hostess Fruit Pies ad featuring the ever-loving blue-eyed thing entitled The Thing and the Ultimate Weapon. The atomic hydralo press has the power to push through a planet and will certainly keep the strange-looking human in his place. Look, his hands dig into the metal as if they were paper. No overgrown toy is going to keep the blue-eyed pretty boy tied down against his will. It is time for the ultimate weapon. Torgo! Sheesh! Just what I need. Another challenge. You know, bud, this can get very boring. Fight, fight, fight. What you need is a new interest. Like this. Hostess fruit pies. Apple. Cherry. Peach. These are good. Very good. Knew you'd like the light tender crust and the real fruit filling. Everybody does. You are right. This is better than fighting. There's more to this strange human creature than brawn. I would only wish that we too could enjoy some Hostess fruit pies. <sighs> you get a big delight in every bite of Hostess fruit pies. Yes, the robot that the thing is fighting is named Torgo. And because we had Servo in the first segment of the show, so now we need Torgo to keep the Misty references coming as fast and furious as possible. I, I mean, Torgo? Torgo! Somebody play me the haunting Torgo theme, because we're done with this section of the, of the show, and we're going to take a quick break. Uh, we'll be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Oh, oh, the haunting Torgo theme. Hey, Michael. Hey, Dad. We need to record another new trailer. Another one? Yes. You know that we read comics and then talk about comics, because as we've established, talking about comics you've not read is just dumb. Yeah, and you make me do it every Thursday. Well, we've moved. Have we? Yes, we have outgrown our old location. I don't feel like I've moved. And we have now moved to twotruefreaks.com. What was that again? TwoTrueFreaks.com A-Kids Comics, still every Thursday at TwoTrueFreaks.com Okay, we're back on Earth Destruction Directive, and in my hot little hands I have your emails to the show. If you want to email the show, you can reach us at EarthDestructionDirective at Yahoo.com and you can also now find the show on Facebook. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive on Facebook and you'll find us and you can send me a message there if you would prefer. Let's get on to the feedback. Uh, we get an uh, email entitled New Fan from Mr. Trent Hackenberry. And Trent writes, For a while now, I've heard, heard ads for Two True Freaks on another podcast, Deconstructing Comics, and only recently decided to give it a try. I was amazed to see all the different shows listed, and yours was the first one I gravitated to. Well, thank you, Trent. And I, I've, I've, one of the strengths of the Two True Freaks Network is that we cover a wide wide net when it comes to different nerd and geek related topics and I think that's one of the definite strengths of our podcast so I'm glad you were able to find our network. Trent continues, and after only listening to the newest episode, number 22, I was hooked. The show was great. Loved the breakdown and commentary for the Ultraman episodes and the Shogun Warriors comics. Shamefully, I must admit I ignored the Shogun Warrior comics, but they actually sound fun. Wish I had known this while I was still working at my local comic store. Don't feel bad, Trent. I didn't know that Marvel had done a Shogun Warriors comic until I found one completely at random. I found issue one in a random bin at a mini-con in Charlotte. So don't worry about it, man. You know, comics are there. The reason why we have comics is so they can be discovered and enjoyed, right? So... Uh, Trent continues, speaking of comics, I wanted to mention an indie comic by Dan Barrington that was Daikaiju-inspired called Giant Killer. To sum it up simply, it's pretty much Hellboy versus Daikaiju. Check it out. I've, I think I've heard of that before. I will have to check that out, and then we'll talk about it on the show once I, I do that. Thank you very much for the suggestion, uh, Trent. I, uh, he continues, also wanted to say that, sadly, I agree with the fact that Ultraman is the ignored middle child of Tokusatsu. I've always loved Godzilla flicks as a kid, but the Australian Ultraman, Ultraman Great, I think officially, really opened my eyes to Tokusatsu along with Mighty Morphin, of course. Uh, yes, Ultraman Great, 
known here in the states as Ultraman Towards the Future, and that was the first Ultraman I saw as well. A lot of a lot of folks in my generation, I think that's probably the first Ultraman they were exposed to. He continues, so it was neat to not only get the breakdown of each episode, but I really appreciate the facts about the suits and effects and what have you. That's the kind of stuff I've been craving. This is running a bit long, so I'll end it here. (laughs) Obviously, you've never heard some of the emails I write to some of these shows I listen to. Trent, if you think this is a long email, don't worry about ever cutting yourself short. Lord knows I have diarrhea of the fingers when it comes to writing emails. Uh, thank you for all the hard work, and it's a great show, and keep on stomping. P.S. I know this is nerdy and nitpicky, but I love that you use the term daikaiju. Since Pacific Rim, I've heard the term kaiju thrown around to describe giant monsters, and that's kind of a pet peeve right there with you, Trent, because kaiju is kind of a catch-all term in my book for any type of monster, whereas a daikaiju specifically is a giant monster. You want an example of a just a straight kaiju? How about the Mega Neuron from Rodan and then Godzilla x They're not humanoid, so they're not like a kaijin, like uh, monsters from a common rider are typically referred to. Definitely a kaiju, not a dai kaiju. You know, it's, to me, it's it's it just part and parcel with the with the genre. It's daikaiju is a very specific type of thing, so I like to try and use that term when I can, and I'm glad that that it's uh, appreciated. And thank you again. Thank you very much for writing in, Trent. Hoping you continue to enjoy the show and that you go back and checks out some of the other shows on the network. Now, Trent also wrote me another. Uh, another email, real qu- a quick one. He said, a quick Gamera question. Been going back through your older episodes, and you mentioned how Sandy Frank, in his bitterness, never wanted to release his versions of Gamera, but MST3K put out a Gamera box set. Are those not the same Frank films? And Trent is absolutely right. Though The Gamera box set for Mystery Science Theater 3000 are the Sandy Frank versions of the films that the uh, Joel and the Bots riffed. I don't know what changed. I had always read that it was unlikely that Misty would ever be able to release the Gamera's because Sandy Frank would not provide them with the license. Now, Shout Factory is the outfit that releases the Misty DVDs. They are also the outfit that has released the subtitled uh, versions of the original uncut Showa Gamera films. Maybe there's some kind of connection there. I don't know. The It could be that the, the rights to the Sandy Frank of dubs reverted back to Dai, and so when Dai gave the license, they were able to license those films as well. I've never been able to find any conclusive information one way or the other. So you're absolutely right. I was as surprised as anyone, Trent, to see those Gamera films get released in a box set. It is a fantastic set. It's it's all five of the ones that they riffed, and they are hilarious. Absolutely hilarious. Some of their best work. The five, Just for the 5,000-piece Fighting Men and Monsters playset, which I think is in Gamera vs. Gauss, that whole segment alone is worth the price of admission as far as I'm concerned. All of the Daikaiju movies they did on Misty were all fantastic. The Gamera won some of the best. So, yeah, check that out again. You can find that at Amazon. Go through the Two True Freaks link and uh, and check that one out. Good, good gift idea. We're coming up on Christmas. Good gift idea right there for a Daikaiju fan in your life. Our next email comes from a man who some say once plotted to turn all the delegates of the UN into powder. And the man who some say may, in fact, be the heir to the O. Henry candy bar fortune. All we know is his name is Jack Dower. And Jack writes, end of the Godzilla series blowout. Well, hello, Lieutenant Jack and Eddie. First off, on the ending of the Godzilla series, that was an amazing monster melee. Your summary, accompanied by the Toho music, really brought it to life. Well, thank you, Jack. That's very nice of you. If they do half as well on the legendary Godzilla film, it will be a smash in more ways than one. Boxer reminds me of the Thimble Theater Popeye before E.C. Seeger had to soften him. And I want to stop right here. That's a great observation, Jack, because I, I like Thimble Theater, the early E.C. Seeger stuff. That's kind of a good observation. He's even kind of squinty like Popeye is, too, just a, a tough guy. Very good pickup. You don't normally think about comparing those two. Although a fight between Popeye and Godzilla on the big screen, I could see it, you know? Get a big can of spinach? Why not? Uh, Jack continues, here's a thought, say this, say that this was the first IDW series and it got the same great advertising gimmick that the Eric Powell series did, do you think the drop-off when, with issue two would have been quite as steep? I think they could have stayed at least in the top 100 through the first dozen issues instead of collapsing with issue number two. An interesting question, because it was, you know, that, that initial ish, issue of Kingdom of Monsters wasn't 
it was okay. It wasn't great. Certainly not as good as the first issue of this series. I don't know that that would have really helped the series any uh, anyway. Because when you think about it, you know, the book is number two and number three of the book are ordered by the retailers before number one hits the stands. So I think a lot of the retailers kind of bought into the gimmick. And the gimmick that Jack's referring to is that retailers who bought a certain number of copies of, uh, of, of Kingdom of Monsters number one were got a special cover featuring their store being stomped by Godzilla. Which is kind of ironic because I get my comics from DCBS, who's a web store, so I don't think they have a brick and mortar location to be stomped, but they still have a cover where they get stomped. Very confusing. So I, I don't think it really would have helped because no one knew the quality of Kingdom of Monsters number one or number two or number three before they ordered them. So it wouldn't be, you know, what we might have seen would be maybe an uptick after. Um, maybe an uptick a little bit after number four, you know, ordering for number four and five, maybe. But I don't know. I, I think that the series is going to sell what it's going to sell. Godzilla is one of the, you know, I, I mean, I love Godzilla, clearly. I mean, I've got more Godzilla stuff in my house than anything else. I mean, just it just goes on. But he's one of those things where nerds and comic fans especially really have a soft spot for them, but majority of them aren't going to spend the money on it, especially not an IDW book where it's a buck more than a Marvel and DC book typically is. So uh, I, I think sales are, are what they are going to be. I think IDW is, is fairly content with the sales because they've kept the license, although it appears that they're going to be losing the license after number 12 of um, Rulers of Earth. This is different than what I had previously read. Chris Mallory said in an interview it was after number eight, but I just read an interview with him earlier this week where he said it was after number 12. Right now is the definite. As of right now, that's where the end is. There may be more after that, but that that's what it's looking at right now. A good question. I don't know that it would have made much difference just because, again, of the nature of the direct of the direct market, but I'm glad they stuck with it and, and ditched the Kingdom of Monsters approach and got us something more little more serious and a lot better quality and honestly rulers of earth has been pretty good it's a little uneven but they've been really kind of cranking it up with some of the monster fights in the last couple of issues so when we get around to covering that i think you'll enjoy that one as well jack continues here's my question was there ever an ultraman comic series if so are they still available who would be your dream team on such a series and which era would you like to see them focus on oh there has been a couple of ultraman comics in the u.s uh, Harvey Comics actually put out a, a set, a three-issue series in like 1992, 93, around there, which was based on Ultraman Towards the uh, towards the Future. In fact, he uh, although it, it kind of posited that that Ultraman was the same one as the original, but he fought Guidus and all that, and it was based on, and Jack Shindo was his human counterpart, so it definitely was focused on Ultraman Great. Uh, Dark Horse put out an Ultraman Tiga series for about a year, two years maybe, right around the time when that show was airing on the Fox Box, which would be about 2002-2003. I have never seen a physical copy of the Ultraman Tiga book. I have the, somewhere, I have the Harvey series. I've got to dig that out and eventually cover that on the show. Uh, there's never really been much of an Ultraman comic here in the U.S. As far as the Dream Team, uh, that's, that's, uh, I'm going to have to cop out on that one because I'm not I'm not like Michael Bailey or Scott Gardner or Andrew Leyland where they can quote you chapter and verse creators and, and you know, go, oh, this guy'd be great for that, this guy'd be great for that. I'm, I'm really not nearly as good with that. I'm not sure who I'd like to see. I definitely want something very straightforward from an Ultraman series. I'd love one set kind of in the, in the Showa era where, you know, all the monsters and everything all kind of coexisted and maybe just have one... That, that follows after Leo or whomever as the next Ultra and have a very, very traditional sort of thing. I thought think that would work well that you could have done-in-one issues of just fighting a monster, and you can also build larger story arcs if you wanted to go that route. Uh, I'm trying to think of a dream. You know who I'd love to see draw, draw a book like that would be Scott Collins, who's one of my absolute favorite uh, superhero artists from the last... Uh, two decades, and man, I'm, I'm reading his, uh, he's doing work on Larflees right now, and there's a lot of strange-looking aliens in Larflees, and they all look fantastic, and I loved his work on Flash. He'd be he'd be a, a neat choice. 
honestly, James Stokoe could do it, and I would be like a pig in slop because his work on Half Century War was blew my mind. Absolutely, just you know, put on a helmet kind of situation here. So, uh, it's a tough question. Listeners, write in. Who would you like to see work on an Ultraman or a Godzilla comic book? You know, let, let's start a discussion here. I'm I'm really interested in hearing some suggestions from people that might be a little better versed in comic creators than I am. Great question, Jack. Jack always has a good question. So I like about him. Uh, Jack wraps up. Thanks for the great show. Keep them stomping. Be safe out there. Jack Dower. P.S. Reno? How did he find out about Reno? Get that hole pulled or I will feed you to my killer ostrich. Hey, are you still taking dictation? Knock it off. Bang. Thud. Whew. Hope Lieutenant Luke didn't get any of that. Well, you know, you kill a man in Reno just to watch him die, Jack. Eventually that's going to come back to haunt you. Kind of stuff like that eats away at a man. It's like drinking a quart of Drano. It'll clean you out, but it leaves you hollow inside. Uh, finally, <laughs> um, my good friend, uh, the Irredeemable Shag and I, of course, we did a, a special a couple of months back, eh, longer than that now, uh, which was our Doctor Who versus Ultraman show, and we both received this email from Mr. Derek Crabb of the Fanholes Podcast, which is available at fanholespodcast.podbean.com, and Derek writes, hello, Shag and Luke, just thought you'd like to know that the Fanholes Podcast is getting to getting ready to release officially on November 21st, so this is uh, out officially. Uh... An episode which celebrates the 50th anniversary in Dove Doctor Who, which gives a shout-out to the Earth Destruction Directive episode, Doctor Who x Ultraman, Big Doing Showdown Across Time and Space, the appearance of Time Lord Alien, the Doctor. As a Doctor Who noob and a longtime Ultraman fan, this was something that helped me dip my big toe into the Doctor Who pool. Hopefully you guys have a chance to check out our Doctor Who show as well in the in this release to both of you gentlemen. Take care, Derek. Uh, Derek, thank you very much for this. I, I listen to the show. I haven't seen the Doctor Who 50th anniversary. Very good episode. A lot of great discussion. Uh, it's a, it's a, a very uh, eclectic group here on the uh, on the Fanholes podcast. I know they're going to be talking to Mr. Rob Kelly of the Fire and Water podcast very shortly. And uh, a good show and a lot of good discussion. And and I appreciate that the uh, the Doctor Who X Ultraman show was able to be kind of a little bit of a of a gateway for you into Doctor Who. I mean. Over the last couple of last month or so, we've been kind of inundated online with Doctor Who stuff because of the 50th anniversary, and um, you know a lot of it just goes right over my head. But I, I keep bringing it back to that. As excited as I got personally when Ultraman Ginga debuted earlier this year, and we got a new Ultraman series, and it was an anniversary series that dealt with all this history about the show. That's what the Doctor Who fans are just as excited about their stuff because it's a huge deal for them, and I totally recognize that. I'm not, I don't consider myself a Doctor Who fan. I've watched some Doctor Who. It's its pretty neat. It's not as cool as Ultraman. Just saying. But I really appreciate the excitement and and it's it's a bit it's infectious the incitement that that the Whovi the Who fans or Whovians I guess they call themselves have for this big anniversary and um, you know hey more power to you and again everybody check out the Fanholes podcast fanholespodcast.podbean.com and they they cover a whole variety of topics so good show to listen to and that takes care of the email bag. So again, if you want to send us some feedback, earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com is your best bet. And uh, of course, all the contact information is on the outro to the show. So now comes the time when everyone asks me, Luke, what are you going to be doing next time? And next time we're going to be taking a look at a film, a proper Godzilla film for a change. And we it's been a while since we've done a Heisei film, so we're going to get back into that. We're going to be taking a look at 1992's Godzilla vs. Mothra. Now, uh, probably um, one of the better known of the Heisei films was uh, available on DVD in this country in dubbed form for a very long time. It is available to watch free on Crackle.com, if you don't mind a few commercial breaks in there, and uh, is, of course, available on DVD uh, in, in, uh, from all, any place you want to get a DVD from if you want to pick it up. Good film introduces us to Batra, who is a, uh, despite only appearing the one time, a pretty popular daikaiju in his own right, and reintroduces Mothra and the uh, Twin Fairies to modern audiences after uh, having taken a break 
pretty much through all of the 1970s. So, uh, so we're going to watch that. Of course, we're going to have the next issue, which is issue 7 of Marvel's Shogun Warriors as well. Uh, any breaking news or new developments on the new Godzilla film, we'll, of course, talk about as well. And we'll have some feedback as long as you guys send some in. So, hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you very much for listening. And as always, keep them stopping. Directed, a Daikaiju podcast, hosted and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, and presented by the Two True Freaks Podcast Network, available at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. All characters, stories, images, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This is a fan work designed to honor the rich history of Japanese giant monster movies and culture. The opinions expressed on Earth Destruction Directive are my own, and I receive no money for this work. You can send feedback to our email address, earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. All feedback is welcome, and if you send it an email, I will respond to you on the show. Alternately, you can leave a comment at the home of Earth Destruction Directive on the Internet, earthdestructiondirective.blogspot.com. You can also check out the Two True Freaks Forum, at www.forum4geeks.com and you can find me on Twitter with the handle Eljacone that's L-J-A-C-O-N-E and be sure to head to twotruefreaks.libsyn.com to check out all the other fine quality Two True Freaks podcasts available thanks for listening and come back next time for more Earth Destruction Directive Well, it's big and terrible. It's more frightening than I ever thought possible.